the centenary test match of 1977 at the MCG is still the greatest cricket event of my lifetime. And I feel rather sorry for anyone who wasn't there to share it. Welcome once again to At The G. I'm Anthony Hudson and thanks so much for joining us. Well, with this year's Ashes series already underway, we'd like to whet your appetite ahead of Boxing Day with the first of two very special episodes remembering what is universally regarded as one of the greatest cricketing occasions and matches ever. The 1977 centenary test between Australia and England, which was a one-off game played before huge crowds at the MCG to celebrate the first ever test match 100 years earlier at the same ground between the same nations. Extraordinarily, the match, which was watched in the stands by many of the two countries' past champions, ended with exactly the same result as 100 years before. And it also produced some amazing individual feats and moments which will never be forgotten. We'll relive the astonishing courage of Rick McCosker, the extraordinary hitting of the golden-haired debutant David Hooks against arch-enemy Tony Gregg, the record-breaking feats of Rodney Marsh, and the two stars of the game, the eccentric Englishman Derek Randall, who refused to be intimidated by the Aussies, and legendary Australian fast bowler Dennis Lilly who had the crowd at fever pitch. I mean, he was a champion, but he loved having the crowd in his pocket and they loved being in his pocket. And, of course, the chant of Lily just echoed around. And You know, he was Sir Lawrence Olivier. He loved the crowd yeah. being there for him. You know, it was like a coliseum. I think the crowd wanted blood, it almost seemed. You could sort of imagine how it would have been in Roman days. To tell the bulk of the story, three characters in the thick of the action. The Feld, Rick McCosker. I see you as this person who uh, got hit on the jaw and went out to bat again, and that's that's the sum total of your test match career. The one and only Kerry O'Keefe, who will bring his serious and not-so-serious side. He said, I could have told you the night before, but I knew you wouldn't sleep, so I've given you eight minutes <laughs> <laughs> to get nervous. <laughs> And champion wicketkeeper Rod Marsh, who will reveal the crazy circumstances that could have cost him a test century. I remember waking up the next morning when I was 95 not out, I might have been overnight. My left hamstring was as tight as all get out and I thought, you idiot, Rod, for kicking a footy all day. We'll also get the English perspective from author David Frith, who spent a lifetime covering and writing about Ashes test matches. Because the Melbourne event was not only seething with famous old cricketers like never before and never since, 
but it was a classic match. And I yeah. remember standing up and yelling at the end of it in the press box saying, 45 runs, that's the same as 1877. <laughs> And veteran radio sports commentator, Graham Smokey Dawson. He bowled him, right through him. What a breakthrough for England. Graham was a young man fortunate enough to join legendary cricketing figures in the commentary box for the match, including the doyen of Australian cricket commentary, Alan McGilvray, and the biggest name in English radio cricket. The great thrill for me was that the BBC sent John Arlott, who'd been a boyhood hero of mine, I first listened to him in 1953 on shortwave radio. Can you believe that? It was like that, but that was my first listening. The centenary test itself was the brainchild of MCC Vice President Hans Erbling who saw his vision of a celebration of Test cricket at the MCG come to life in March 1977. Hans was a tall man, you could see, a fast bowler who played, Mm. in fact, one Test match in England on the 1934 tour, who for some years had been saying, we must recognise the centenary of Test cricket. It was a really big occasion and the biggest occasion for us, the players, was the fact that every Test cricketer from both England and Australia who'd played Test cricket were invited along to that Test match and most of them came and that was the big highlight for us because we got to uh, rub shoulders with those that had gone before us and the England players did exactly the same thing. Potters hopes that the former England cricketers here for the centenary test enjoy their stay in Melbourne. I was living in England. I'd flown over. You had one huge aeroplane full of ex-test players going right back to uh, Percy Fender with his grandson. But when we got to Melbourne, all was joy and harmony and reminiscence. They all had pretty uh, aching wrists at the end of that week. Even a hard-headed bloke like Brian Close was getting autographs. All his life he'd been signing for other people. But the sense of occasion, the sense of history, I've never known anything like it before or since. We're in the same room as everyone, you know, at, at several functions, and that was the big thrill for us. Did you have that sense of, of history and the people you were mixing with? Oh, look, I had the sense of history before I started playing. I think that's the way uh, we were. We read a lot of cricket books. I mean, that was, instead of reading a novel at school, you'd read a cricket book if you had half a chance. You know, it was just something I think the majority of us absolutely loved and and we knew who'd gone before us and we knew what they'd done and Wally Grout was my hero. He was the man that I followed particularly. You know, I think Dennis Lee had Ray Limble and uh, I know Ian Chappell loved Keith Miller. You know, it was just one of those things that uh, I think we all did and we all knew about and we all talked about. I actually found it very difficult to play because I am a cricket nuffy. So I wanted to go to all the functions every night and talk <laughs> to players from the past. To talk to Harold Larwood and a lot of the Invincibles from 48 and, and a lot of the Englishmen that I knew by name, like P- Peter May and people like that, I just had a ball after six o'clock, but I had to Bundy on at 11 o'clock the next morning. <laughs> and I found that tough. Because I, I enjoyed it, the after play as much as the game. 
and it was brilliant. Uh, great to be part of it. Just about everybody, all the players, I think, were in the, um, the hotel across the road. You know, wherever you went, you could see these older players and their, you know, every bar you went into, <laughs> there they were, just uh, standing, having a drink and chatting with each other and uh, guys that you know I'd never seen before. But it was wonderful just to be able to put faces to names that we'd heard of yeah, and be able to join in conversations um, with, with the legends wherever possible. And it was absolutely fantastic and a wonderful atmosphere. And it's just one of those events that really... Melbourne are so good at putting on. Rick, is there anyone you particularly remember meeting? I mean, we did get an opportunity very briefly to meet Sir Donald, and that was the only time I'd met him. But uh, I remember Keith Miller, uh, a lovely man. I would have loved to have spent some more time with him. That's Bill O'Reilly, uh, great characters. And, of course, uh, you know, Alan Davidson, and Neil Harvey. And a hero of mine was Norm O'Neill. At the time, I realised it was something special, given that you wouldn't get that many former players at the one ground at the one time. And they were there to watch. So it wasn't just the cursory one first day appearance and off. They were there for the duration. So the thing that stood out for me was the enthusiasm inside the ground each day. Um, the nets were on the MCG in those times. So you had to walk from the dressing rooms across towards those bays. And there were three or 4,000 people each day gathered around the nets. And each time a player walked across, they broke into applause. And that had never happened anywhere that I'd played uh, throughout my career. To see so much support just with a, a round of applause that a player was about to practice. So I knew that there was something special around this game, given that the crowd was so involved in it and you so appreciated it. I was only a boy, obviously, when the Melbourne Olympic Games were held in 1956. I hadn't sensed anything like that in Melbourne since then until the centenary test. Smoke, I know you've got a story about who you met at one of the pre-game functions, thanks to John Arlott. What happened when you arrived? Walk inside the door and standing two metres inside the door and no one between them and the door, Sir Donald Bradman and Harold Larwood in intimate conversation. They see us walk in, stop and say, John, John, come over here. John quietly whispers to me, son, stick with me. And I said, John, I'm not going anywhere. So... For half an hour, probably, I'm standing there, ears flapping, mouth wide open, didn't say a word, hard to believe, hard open, didn't say a word for 20 minutes to half an hour, listening to John talk with Sir Donald and Harold. Unbelievable. And the two of them, the best of buddies. The principal attraction was Don Bradman, of course. Sir Donald was the key speaker at the main dinner, but I'm thrilled to say that our friendship saw Don and Jesse hosting me for breakfast on the morning of my birthday, which was, I think, the third day of the match. And uh, it was my 40th, and they made choice, got off to a memorable start, although Don was a serious man. And over breakfast, we talked about all the problems facing cricket. It, It could have been more joyous, but never mind, I was talking with a great little fella. Well, David, as amazing as that must have been, there there really was plenty of problems, wasn't there, for the cricket establishment, even though they may not have realised it yet, as behind the scenes, Kerry Packer's World Series cricket was being assembled with the superstars of the game signing on, 
All in a veil of secrecy. The subterfuge, the, uh, what was going on behind the scenes was, was quite creepy. Of course, soon afterwards, it was no longer the full strength Australian side because the pack of war began mm. and all the big names signed up. Only a very few people were in on the secret of what was Packer was planning. Only the Packer crowd knew what was going on, Tony Gregg and the Chapel brothers and so on. And I, I personally was approached prior to the centenary test, but I didn't make any decision. I did not even think about it until after the centenary test. And uh, so I basically put it in the back of my mind until after the test match was over, but then obviously had to make decisions. But yes, uh, unbeknown to each of us, there was stuff happening behind the scenes, but it was all very hush-hush and um, in, in great uh, great amount of secrecy. It, it was happening. Cricket was being torn asunder, but it recovered, but it never looked the same again. And that's why the MCG centenary test event stands like a beacon, almost like a farewell to the game as we knew it with all those old timers there playing homage. And we were just players and we played because we loved the game and you know, it got to the stage we were playing a heck of a lot of cricket in front of very big crowds and getting paid literally nothing. And I think that as a result, World Series came about and I think the game has gone forward since those days. Certainly from the players' point of view, the players are getting treated like professionals now, uh, whereas before they were not getting <laughs> treated very well at all, I must say. The Centenary Test was almost the last great hurrah before the game not only split in time, it reunited, but it was the moment that cricket became absolutely money-based. 77 centenary test was probably a signal for the end of the great amateur age. They were paid very poorly. They played mainly for the honour of representing their country and for the thrill of playing cricket at the very top level. Afterwards, money became the chief consideration. And as Packer said, every man has his price. After an on-ground ceremony where the legends were paraded, finally the toss took place with England captain Tony Gregg calling correctly and sending Australia into bat, which meant all eyes were on Aussie openers Ian Davis and Rick McCosker. Yeah, obviously there was, there was tension. There was a lot of tension there, everybody, including um, the fielding side. Yeah, I, was, I was nervous, I remember that. The fact that there were 60,000, 70,000 people there at the MCG, but the occasion, that's a bit hard to do try and block it out. Did you actually feel like the legends were watching you as you went out to open the innings? It wasn't the same as any other test match. Even though you tried not to, but it was in the back of your mind, you kept thinking, yeah, these guys, are they going to be up there um, having a beer and sitting there, Jim and Tony, judging how we're performing in this important test match? So we're trying to concentrate and, uh, and the conditions were difficult yeah, for batting. But it was great to be able to, to say that I walked out and opened the innings from a country um, at the centenary test, but not great that didn't get many runs. <laughs> well, obviously you didn't get many runs in the first innings and that was due to a bouncer from Bob Willis. Sean, he's pulled it on. Hit him in the face. He's hit him in the face. Looks as though he's got a nasty cut there. Seems as though he's spitting out some blood and some treatment. As an opening batsman, you, you get a pretty good idea when a fast bowler is going to bowl you a, a bouncer. 
And uh, when Bobby Wallace was coming in, I thought, oh, this is going to happen. So uh, I was probably ready and in position too soon, to be honest. And I actually played the shot before the ball got to me. In, in hindsight, I realised that I'd broken the, uh, an unwritten rule that you never play a crossbat shot or a hook shot on the MCG on the first morning of a test match. But in those days, there was a six-day test match. And curators obviously wanted to make sure that the, the wicket was going to last. So there was a bit of moisture in the wicket in that first morning. And uh, because of that, there is an unwritten rule that you just don't play a hook shot in that first session. But I forgot about that on the occasion. And I thought, uh, well, up in the building there was Sir Donald Bradman. What would he have done? He probably would have smashed it in front of Square League for ball off the front foot. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't that quite, uh, quite up to that. And so I missed it. And... Um, and it hit me. So, and that was it. But the unfortunate part about it, or a couple of unfortunate things, was that the ball went from from my face down to the, the stumps and knocked the bales off. That was the first thing the Englishman realised that, that the ball had hit the stumps. Of course, they you know, they were appealing and they were pretty happy. But uh, then they realised that uh, I wasn't faring too well. So uh, they were very concerned, and particularly Bobby Willis, he was very concerned. But just just the way it was, it was just uh, a bad technique. So how quickly did you process what had happened? I know we are going back in time, but I'm sure it's something you haven't been allowed to forget in many ways. But how quickly did you realise you were out? And then how quickly did you realise you were seriously hurt? Probably realised pretty much straight away. When I, when I heard the English going up and appealing, and I looked around and I knew that uh, knew I was out. But in actual fact, I didn't realise at first the extent of the injury because I didn't find this out till later, but it actually cut across a couple of nerves in my jaw and the whole whole thing went numb for a little while. And it wasn't until probably two or three hours later in the dressing room that uh, my face started to swell up and there was a lot of internal bleeding. Initially, it was thought it was just bruising, but then when when my face started to... uh, really swell up and uh, as internal bleeding it was suggested that go off to hospital and have an x-ray and that's where I stayed for the next couple of days. What was the feeling in the change rooms when, when he went down? Oh he'll be all right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know that's you get hit and you get up and that's what he did and I think he probably would have wanted to bat on you know he's a tough country boy and yeah look we never ever thought that he wouldn't be okay until we found out that his jaw was broken probably and when we found that out we thought well you know maybe he won't bat in the second innings but there was no way known he wasn't going to you know he, he's that sort of guy fantastic courage well it's fortunate in one way that in the hospital there was a specialist uh, who basically worked 24 hours first of all he took a plaster cast of my um, on my teeth which wasn't very pleasant because I had to get all this plaster power stuff uh, whatever it was in between the teeth so he took that cast and then was able to make a, um, a silver splint on my teeth and so I would have put that in and um, wrapped the bandage around my head which basically kept my jaw immobile which uh, in the long run allowed me to um, have to go back out and bat in the second innings. And Rod, you found yourself going in with Australia at 5 for 51 and obviously really struggling. You know, it was pretty obvious that the pitch was probably a little bit underdone to a degree. I don't think the weather was that hot and that's probably cause for you know, a little bit more movement than the game would have liked at that stage. You made 28 in that first innings, which ended up being second top score. So were the conditions that bad in your mind? 
I couldn't believe what was wrong with the blokes that went before me because I, I didn't find it that difficult. I, I honestly thought that by the time I got in, you know, I couldn't believe that we were in such dire straits, really. But uh, on reflection, if I have a look at what, you know, our premier batsman, Greg Chappell, got 44, I reckon, but it took him four hours. Now, that is ridiculous. It never took Greg Chappell four hours to get 40. Uh, at any other stage in his life, I don't reckon. So it couldn't have been that easy. But I honestly, I must have been in fairly good nick because I really didn't find it as difficult as a lot of other people did. I think I was hitting the ball probably better then at any stage of my career. It didn't feel that difficult uh, to me, but I guess you have those games when the ball hits the middle of the bat more often than not, and, and I think I had one of those games. I think nervousness got us on that first morning. There was a little bit in the pitch, and England bowl well. But I think the occasion got to us a little. Of course, Rick getting hit in the jaw in that early period was dramatic, and we didn't quite recover on that day. But then we bounced back on day two. You know, with us being bowled out for 130-odd, it looked very much like the game could not take five days. <laughs> it looked, looked like it could take about three days or two days. I thought that if we only got 130-odd, because I'd played against them the week before, and I thought, well, you know, they're not that great. Uh, mind you, we weren't either, I didn't think. that Some of our cricket wasn't great in New Zealand, and, and, and some of our cricket hadn't been great for a little while. So we, I didn't think we were a great side. We were a good side, but I didn't think the Poms were that good either. And I thought if we only got 130-odd, then there's no reason why, you know, we can't hold them to a reasonable score. And you did much better than that. Bowled them out for just 95. Thanks almost entirely to your two opening bowlers. Max Walker maybe gets forgotten a bit, but he took four for 54. And, of course, the great DK Lilly, 13.3 overs, six for 26. What was it like to be playing out there with a crowd at fever pitch chanting his name and, and Dennis in full flight? Well, it was, you know, it was like a Coliseum. There's no doubt about that. That's how you sort of felt. I think the crowd wanted blood, it almost seemed. You know, it was just, you could sort of imagine if you really uh, wanted to, how, you know, how, how it would have been in Roman days when uh, people were out there fighting the lions or fighting each other and they wanted to see action. And uh, certainly when Dennis was bowling, they saw action all the time, uh, whether it be him getting wickets or you know, him glaring at, at the batsman or him getting hit for four and uh, then coming in and bouncing the, the batsman next ball, you know, almost predictable, but... Uh, it's what the crowd wanted, and that's uh, that was the atmosphere. Oh, it's fantastic! It, it's one of the few times you feel sorry for the batsman. And then <laughs> I, I, I was in the gully, and Dennis was very crowd sensitive. I mean, he was a champion, but he loved having the crowd in his pocket, and they loved being in his pocket. You know, he just added kilometres per hour to his pace as well. Because when he measured his run up, there you could you could hear the crowd starting to warm to his return to the bowling crease, and of course the chant of Lily just echoed around, and he loved it. I mean, he you know he was Sir Lawrence Olivier. He loved like Shane Warne. He loved the crowd yeah. being there for him, and it lifted him. Um, and and he just bowled some spells with the crowd in his pocket. You know, there was once a bit later on to Viv Richards at the MCG where he got him out of the last ball of the day yep. with the crowd completely going nuts. And Dennis loved that. I played him in Sheffield Shield games where he never quite got that, you know, he was never quite the force because there was nobody at the ground. But for Australia, with a, a full house, 
he was a, a power to reckon with. And you love just having him there, you know, because the thing is, he tried so hard. He once said to me, you know, we were having a drink. I said, what, what do you fear most in cricket? He said, the thing I fear most in cricket is to return none for 100. He said, when I run in for Subiaco in club cricket or WA or anyone, from my very first ball, my aim is to avoid that. Wow. Yeah. And of course, I was driven by a fear of failure. But he actually was. And if he had none for 90, nobody fought harder to avoid none for 100 than DK Lilly. I assured him that when you got used to it. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's funny, isn't it? A sports psychologist would, would say, no, well, if you're driven by that, it's probably the, the wrong um, force behind you. But it actually was. But that was the thing about Dennis Lilly. He, he, he was team-orientated to a, to a big extent without professing it in front of everybody. Yep. But he never knocked back third and fourth spells. He tried his heart out in the field. Um, he was that sort of cricketer. That's why the chapels loved him so much. And do you think he was at pretty much at the peak of his career at a, about that time? Oh, God. I thought he was at the peak of his career every time he bowled, you know. <laughs> it's, it's hard to know when he was at his absolute best. You know, I think you could almost mount an argument that towards the end mm. he was probably as good as he'd ever been because he cut down and, you know, he became a different type of bowler but still exceptionally effective. Look, he wouldn't have been far off his peak, but he never was, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Whenever he bowled, you knew one thing, that he, he was always giving it everything he had. He never left anything in the tank. And was that just his nature? Yep, yep. Still is, still is. Even to this day, whatever he does, you know, you know damn well he's not messing around. He's doing it properly. The connection between you two, did when did that first establish itself? Was it just at, at state level? No, before then, club cricket. Uh, I played against him in uh, club cricket. The first time I played against him, I you know, he tore in like a madman, uh, arms and legs flailing everywhere and bowled a fair amount of trash, actually, I thought. First time I saw him, but he ran me out, unbelievably, for a fast bowler. He picked it up one hand at the stumps, and I thought, hmm, well, at least he's got some natural ability, this kid. And he wasn't that much younger than me, but he was a kid as far as I was concerned. And then we went through the ranks and started getting wickets, and you know, it wasn't long before he was in the shield side because of his raw pace. And you know, it was pretty obvious he was always going to be a good bowler. And the Court Marsh Bowl Lily, I mean, it was it was just synonymous with cricket, really, as, as I was growing up. Court Marsh Bowl Lily, it was something that we probably hadn't seen before as, a, I guess, a known phrase between bowler and, and keeper. How did that make you feel, how, how big well, that was? I think the thing was that people, you know, always thought of Dennis as just a fast bowler, but what Dennis did better than anyone was to actually swing the ball or move the ball away from the right-handed batsman. And, you know, people tend to forget that he could actually swing the ball. And that was, you know, what kept me in the game the whole time because, you know, he didn't swing it prodigiously it's like a Bob Massey used to swing it all over the place or a Mick Malone or people like that. But what he did do was swing it enough to get the edge and that's all that counted. His line to right-handers was, was phenomenal. He made the right-handers play at most deliveries and you're always in the game, that being the case. Not a great bowler to left-handers, and he acknowledges that, I think, and he preferred bowling to right-handers for sure. But, you know, there wasn't a right-hander in the world that felt comfortable when he was bowling. 
And when you had combined for a wicket, was there much said between the two of you? No, not really. I mean, there's the odd time where we uh, we might have planned a, a thing or two, but you know, most of the time you didn't have to do a hell of a lot. You knew one was coming your way sooner or later <laughs> if you kept on bowling that line. You know, it was that good. Cricket authorities were thrown into total panic after the second day. Australia's been bowled out for 139, and then we dismiss England for 95. Both teams out by the middle of the second afternoon. What's the big event of the whole match? Her Majesty the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, coming to meet the players at tea on day five. So they're all thinking, are we going to have to put on a one-day game and do this or do that? But fortunately, both teams batting improved considerably in the second innings. And Her Majesty and the Duke of Edinburgh were able to meet the players and they were still in combat, so it was fantastic. But, oh... (laughs) <laughs> there were some nervous moments there from a few officials, I can promise you that, Anthony. So Australia started its second innings, 43 runs ahead late on day two. And with McCosker still in hospital, it meant a stand-in opener had to be found. We bowled them out for 95 on day two, and I'd batted nine in the first innings and got a duck. So I just thought everybody would push up one in the order. And um, Dennis, having got that six wickets, um, I thought, wow, you know, this is we're back in the game. And then I felt Greg Chappell's right hand on my left shoulder. He said, I want you to open the batting and I want you to bat as if your life depended on it. I said, no problems. But, you know, you say no problems for anything. (laughs) (laughs) That was a throwaway line, but there were big problems. But he said, I could have told you the night before, but I knew you wouldn't sleep. So I've given you eight minutes (laughs) (laughs) to get nervous. (laughs) And I think it was the right play because you can't really get that nervous in eight minutes. So I walked out to bat and maybe I'd have taken better care of myself the night before (laughs) if I'd known, but (laughs) who's to say? Uh, but I just remember Ian Davis, who was a friend of mine, I said, well, let's do our best. And we did. And we, you know, we, we got us off to a, a fairly decent start. We put 30 odd on and I could sense they were tiring a bit. Um, they'd been to India. So I, I just thought if we can just keep them out there as long as possible, they might wilt. And they did get tired. After an opening stand of 33, Australia quickly lost Greg Chappell and Gary Cozier cheaply. Davis and Doug Walters both made important 60s, but were completely overshadowed by the debutant David Hooks. The dashing 21-year-old South Australian's duel with English captain Tony Gregg is the stuff of legend. Let's hear first from award-winning cricket journalist and author Mike Coward. Yes, I mean, it's it's sad when you look back to think we've lost those two, these, these great... I mean, Hooks's um, performance leading into that uh, test match was just extraordinary. I mean, we'd heard a lot about this kid, Hooks. Uh, we hadn't seen much of him, but I reckon he got five or six hundreds for South Australia. And uh, as a result, you know, he, he had to get chosen. But for him to be chosen for that particular match as his first was a little bit of a surprise to a few people, I reckon. 
Wouldn't have surprised Hooksy. The doubts about playing somebody who was playing, you know, just so well, you know, you've just got to play them. And that's what they did with in full marks to the, the selectors. They picked Hooks on the strength of what he had done in, in the lead up with an astonishing sequence of scores. And uh, he was just thrilling. On 36 not out, Hooks lofted an off drive over extra cover that almost went for six. The next delivery from the medium pacer was slightly down the leg side, which Hooks helped on its way down to fine leg for four more to move to 44. Off the next ball, he produced a classic cover drive to make it three fours in a row. And he needed just two more runs for a memorable debut half century. Greg goes in, round the wicket to build the hooks again. And he glances in this time. And there's his 50, a beautiful stroke. And he drives and binds the gap. Barlow may just overhaul it this time. No, he can't. Five fours in a row. He had this bat that looked like he'd used it for a couple of years and had tape and stuff all over it. But I don't think we realised just how good a timer he was of the cricket ball. And I certainly got that from a very short distance because uh, I was at the other end when he hit Greggy for those five fours in a row. And, I mean, they were some fantastic shots there. And, you know, the MCG is a big ground, but the ball seemed to get to the boundary a lot quicker than most that were hit during that game. He timed the ball magnificently. And that uh, assault on <laughs> on Tony Gregg, the fours were quite brilliant. It could have been another too. It was, I think it was Derek Randall who went full length to stop the last of them. Um, but the crowd just loved that. And that became a precious part of folklore, of the game's law. And here we are all these years on still happily talking about it. If there was a, an England cricketer that nearly every Australian didn't like too much, it was Greggy. And Hooksy hit him for five fours in and over with a beautiful array of strokes all round the wicket. And I think from the 60-odd thousand that would have been at the MCG, all stood and cheered and stood and cheered louder with every four. And it was just a shame that he got out when he did because it would have been nice to see him get 100 on debut. And obviously he was drooling it out with Tony Gregg, who was the English captain. So what was Greggy like out on the field as a competitor and how much would, would he have hated being hit that way by Hooksy? Oh, look, he was a terrific competitor, Greggy. Uh, I mean, we'd played against him before and he'd done his level best to annoy us and that was his way. And he was always looking for a psychological advantage. And, you know, technically he wasn't a great cricketer, Greggy, I didn't think. I mean, as a batsman, he, his technique wasn't great. As a bowler, he just he bowled a fair amount of rubbish. And I think he intimidated people by the way he went about his bowling. And he got batsmen angry. And when batsmen got angry, they often got out. And that's how he got a lot of his wickets. But uh, having said that, it's more than one way to skin a cat. And he sure skinned a few. Uh, had a terrific pair of hands. He could catch anything. And I thought he was very good for English cricket at the time. And it was good playing against him, mainly because, you know, he he behaved probably more like one of us. And it was, you know, also very good beating him because that's what competition's about. You know, when you've got a real competitor against you, it's nice to beat them. That's the voice of legendary wicketkeeper Rodney Marsh with his memories of former England captain Tony Gregg and the 1977 centenary test. And some of the game's biggest moments are still to come in part two of our look back on the most celebrated of cricketing occasions. And I'd never heard anything like that before for any other sports person.
it nearly uh, took me down, actually, but was was wonderful. What was it like when he came out to bat then? Because Walsing McCosker was the chant. I was alongside him, and he didn't say any. Well, he couldn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> Part two is coming your way soon, but for now, a big thanks for all who gave us their time, including Rod Marsh, Rick McCosker, Kerry O'Keefe, David Frith, Mike Coward and Graham Smokey Dawson. And a special thanks too to the ABC for the use of their amazing audio in helping to bring the test to life. In the meantime, we can't wait for Boxing Day to hear the roar of full stands once again for an Ashes test as this Australian-English rivalry continues at the gym.